God of love, the God of grace, the God of solutions and answers, the God of the word, the God of the spirit, the God of this church, the God of our lives. We're so grateful to you. You have our hallelujah. You have our worship. You have our awe. Father, it's such a privilege to be in your house, in your presence. And Holy Spirit, we just welcome you here and we say, would you, would you come and speak to us, Lord? You have our soft hearts. You have our open ears. And Lord, we just long to learn more of your person, more of your ways, more of your heartbeat. So we might live and love and serve you long and faithfully on this earth. Lord, we give you the next few minutes. Come speak, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, yours. How are you doing? Excellent. Okay, so... Uh, today is 21st Century Wisdom Part 2, and a bit of a recap, just to kick us off. The thought that sparked this series was something like this in my head. In a world in which access to knowledge has gone nuts, in a world in which everyone has an opinion and a platform from which to express it, what does it mean in the middle of all of that? What does it mean to be wise? How do we make sense of and how do we sift our way through all that information? A couple of fun facts for you to kick off. Google, did you know that Google was originally called Backrub? True story, true story. And then they renamed it, uh, the play on the word Google, which is one followed by a hundred zeros. I think that was prophetic. You know, in 1997, Google tried to sell to Yahoo. Do you believe? $2 million. Yahoo weren't interested. In 2003, Yahoo bid $3 billion, but it was declined. It is now worth $1.73 trillion, Google. I did a Google search. I put the word wisdom in. No, it came up with 988 million results, apparently, in 0.31 seconds. That's impressive. And incidentally, if if you want to know, the first search result on wisdom on Google is the Oxford Dictionary definition of the word wisdom. Boom, boom. Mentioned it last week, the, the Encyclopedia Britannica. Remember that? Anyone have a set of those still? You do. I think we had a junior one when I was junior, back in the dark ages, just after Jesus came. Do you know, the Encyclopedia Britannica discontinued printing in 2012. Wikipedia launched in 2001. In 2012, the Encyclopedia had 65,000 articles. Now, Wikipedia today, these up-to-date figures has 6,713,000 English articles. 100 times as many. 547 new articles every day. And apparently 40 million people access Wikipedia via their mobile phone each day. 
I tried to find out, you know, because Encyclopedia Britannica was 32 volumes. I tried to find out how long a print run of Wikipedia would take. But it kind of blew up Google trying to find that out. So um, the figures are very old, but suffice it to say it was large. Um, I looked on Amazon. The 15th edition of Encyclopedia Britannica is worth £850, which has gone down since I last looked. Wikipedia, of course, is free. But you can incidentally get Encyclopedia online for only £64.95 a year. Interesting fact. Point is that the access to information has exploded exponentially. We are overloaded. But where are the signposts? How do we know what's true? How do we know which of the many opinions are valid? Is there a danger that we're filling ourselves with knowledge that is deceptive, dishonest, dangerous, even destructive? Reality is, I said last week, that, that we are being pounded and bullied. We are being seduced and we are being marketed by, in, in all sorts of directions by all kinds of voices with various hidden agendas, all claiming to be wise. And without doubt, as Christians in the 21st century, the issues we are facing are getting harder and more complex and more contentious. So how do we, ask this question last week, how do we, as followers of Jesus, how do we find wisdom and how do we live wisely when so many influences are shouting at us? Now last week, I gave a definition of wisdom and I said that wisdom is the ability to see the world, to see through God's eyes. And we said that this is difficult when, when we have a world that sees almost entirely today through secular eyes. And the reality is, church, that, that unless we put up a stern resistance, there is a great danger that we too will in time be trained to see through those eyes as well. Remember Romans 12 verse 2, familiar famous verse says this, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Sounds like wisdom to me. Have you spotted that there are, there are many forces, there are many influences, many voices trying desperately, even aggressively, to try to get you to conform, to conform to their agenda, to their point of view, to their take on morality or sexuality or politics. Paul said, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Philip's translation, do not let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. Fashion translation, stop imitating the ideals and opinions of the culture around you. Do you ever feel squeezed? Do you ever feel 
pressurized by the culture around you. If you do, Paul's message was do not conform. They desperately want you to conform. They'll shout at you. They'll intimidate you. They'll call you names. They'll even cancel you. But as followers of Jesus, the one who is holy, 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 the one who is the way and the truth and the life, we are not called to conform, but to be transformed. How? tells us in Romans 12, by the renewing of our mind, until we think like Jesus, until we see the world like Jesus. There's that definition again. Until we follow his example in all we do and all we say. Renewing our minds literally means a complete thinking renovation. It means a stripping out of all the foolishness and a saturation instead with God's wisdom. Letting God's word disqualify all the lies so we can only see the truth. So it washes us clean. It makes us whole. It pulls us onto the rock. And we need to meditate on that word. We need to bombard ourselves with his principles and his promises until we start to see what he sees. Until we habitually see through a different set of lenses. I don't know what lenses you tend to see the world from, but I, but I reckon we need to see it through the lens of eternity. We need, we need to start to see the world through the lens of holiness. And we need to start to see the world through the lens of redemption. So here's the question. What lens are you looking through? When you're looking at the world, when you're looking at your decisions, when you're considering your relationships, the short answer, of course, is we need to see what God sees because that will lead us into what James 3 described. We saw that last week. We'll look at it in a minute what he called wisdom from above. And the alternative views, James teaches, will try to trick you with a false wisdom that is, in fact, earthly and unspiritual and demonic. We'll read the text in a minute. The reality is there are various different kinds of wisdom from different sources with different motivations with very different characteristics, which will, of course, produce very different fruit. The next few minutes, we're going to look at the characteristics of what James describes as wisdom from above. Remember the passage, James 3, verse 17. He said, the wisdom from above is, first of all, pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. Verse 18, And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace 
and reap a harvest of righteousness. Before we dig into that a little bit, you know, as, I, as I read through that, the thought that occurs to me is that of all the different types and sources of wisdom that, that are being pounded or being marketed or being sent our direction, how many of them are like that? How many of them are like that? And if their characteristics are different to that, then guess what, folks? Coming from a different place. James said, the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It is free from any defilement or impurity or carnality. Wisdom from above is holy and it is innocent and it is beautiful. And if it is not like that, it is not wisdom from above. Then he went on to say it's it's peace-loving. Heavenly wisdom will lead you and indeed everyone towards that Hebrew concept of shalom, which is wholeness and reconciliation and tranquility and harmony. The wisdom from above, James said, is gentle. It's not manipulative, not intimidating or harsh. If it is shouting and screaming at you, It is almost certainly not wisdom from above. And then he says, it's willing to yield. It respects freedom of choice. We're beaten with this stick of freedom of choice, aren't we? So it respects that freedom whilst recognizing that ultimately it is God to whom we must yield. Wisdom from above is described as full of mercy. You know, not everyone has what we have. Not everyone knows what we know. For many, the road has been hard. And so true wisdom never loses the imperative of grace, mercy. Then it says, heavenly wisdom is full of good fruits. And so ultimately, wisdom, like everything else, can be measured by the fruit that it bears. Nearly down that list. Wisdom from above shows no no favoritism. Literally, it is impartial. And I'd say this, so much purported wisdom is so clearly biased and imbalanced, frankly, to be ridiculous. And then lastly, wisdom from above is always sincere, literally without hypocrisy. Genuine. There's no acting, there's no faking, it doesn't change with the wind, it doesn't play to the audience, but it's faithful to the truth that it stands for always. Sounds like a great description of the characteristic of heavenly wisdom. But it's pretty obvious that that not everything out there claiming to be wise sounds or behaves like that. But that's what God sees. God sees. Those are the lens through which we have to look. Folks, if, if the definition of wisdom is seeing through God's eyes, then if you are looking through any other lens, we have a word for that. Foolishness. Foolishness. James covers that actually 
in verses 14 to 16 of, of chapter 3. But if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Where there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. So the God kind of wisdom looks through pure and peace-loving and gentle and merciful and sincere eyes. Absolutely. But if you are looking through selfish eyes, if you are looking through jealous or resentful or contentious eyes, or boastful, proud, superior eyes, or deceived or deceiving eyes, you will never see wisdom. Because wisdom sees through God's eyes. We've just had a description of what that looks like. Now, in the minutes that remain today, I'm going to make four statements, and we'll just quickly dissect each of those, and then we'll wrap up. So the four statements are this. If you are looking through impure eyes, you will never see wisdom. Remember that definition again. Wisdom is the ability to see the world, to look at the world through God's eyes. So number one, if you're looking through impure eyes, you will never see wisdom. Number two, if you're looking through judgmental eyes, it can never be wisdom. Number three, if you're looking through vengeful eyes, it can never be wisdom. And number four, where we'll end, if we're looking through unbelieving eyes, it can never be wisdom. Remember, the aim is, is, is to train us to see the world around us through God's eyes. So let's look at those quickly. Number one, if you are looking through impure eyes, it can never be wisdom. This might go all sorts of places in your head. Proverbs 19, verse 9. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. And that ties in with Proverbs 9, 10, which says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Connects wisdom and purity. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Job 14.4, who can bring what is pure from the impure? No one. Matthew 5 verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. If you want to see God, if you want to see what God sees, you have to be pure in heart. And Ezekiel 44.23 says, and they, talking about the Levites, the priests, shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the unholy, and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. Now here, we are in danger of walking headlong into all sorts of controversial issues. So I'll simply say this. The key question for me is, who, who in the middle of all these opinions, in the middle of all these agendas, who gets to define what is pure? Who gets to define what is holy and what is moral and what is good? Who gets to determine where any lines get drawn or boundaries set? 
And our unequivocal answer to that question must be the God of heaven and earth. He gets to defy. He gets to choose. He gets to draw the line. You know, for me, as I ponder this, I cannot get past the angels in heaven singing, holy, holy, holy. The fact that the, the supreme being living in my heart is the Holy Spirit. And so for me, as soon as it is unholy, as soon as it is impure, it is immediately disqualified as wisdom. If it is not drawing me closer to my holy God, it is self-evidently foolish not wise. Even if it fits your definition of love, if it doesn't fit God's definition of holy, it is not wise. Those are strong words. I'm going to read that again. Even if it fits your definition of love, and there are lots of definitions out there, if it doesn't fit God's definition of holy, it is not and cannot be wise. Don't let the one, as we saw last week, who masquerades as an angel of light make a fool of you. Whew, that's heavy, pastors. Calm down a minute. Okay, I'll tell you a story. So, never a bit of a rest. That was, oh, and there's more to come. So. so when I was young, very young, um, I went on a hockey tour with Devon under-21s. My two boys are going off to Exeter University today. Very exciting. So I played hockey for Devon under-21s, and because we were quite good and we'd had a good season, we went on tour to the center of the hockey world, which I truly will tell you is Holland. And um, we, we had a hockey fest that was very hot, and we lost, I think. Anyway, it was good. But on the, kind of the last night, it was our big night out. So we were all going into Amsterdam. <laughs> right. Because you know what's in Amsterdam, don't you? So you can imagine us on the bus. And, and there was a bit of a divide in the bus. There was, I was 21. I think I was the old man. I was, we were the mature ones over here. And then there were the kids going, red light district, red light district. I don't know what they were going to do when they got to the red light district. But anyway, they'd heard about it. They, and, and off they went. And we were going, no, we're far too mature. Under no circumstances, we going into the red light. Anyway, it was a long evening. By the end, actually, me and another couple of guys, we did take a little meander through the red light district at the end. And I tell you, I, I tell you what I was expecting. I was expecting, and this is a long time ago, so everything might have changed, as my kids keep reminding me. I was expecting it to be dark. I was expecting it to be sinister. I was expecting it to be eerie and kind of smoky and sort of music in the background. But you know what? In fact, the lights were bright. The atmosphere was jolly. There was nothing hidden. There was nothing hidden. As if to say, come on in. What are you afraid of? Trust me. There is plenty to be afraid of. Remember, in many cases, we saw this last week, 
what, what the world, what, sorry, what the word calls good, the world now calls evil, vice versa. What the world, sorry, what the word, word world, my eyes aren't as good as they were. What the word calls impure and unholy and harmful and sinful, the spirit of the world is trying to, desperately trying to redefine as good, even better. But folks, if it is impure, it cannot be wise. James 3.17, right at the start, but the wisdom from above is first of all pure. So we must let purity be our first filter, the first lens that we look through. And we need to let God and and the word of God and the witness of his spirit be what defines that purity, nothing else. Not the loudest voice, not the latest cultural fad, not the spirit of Hollywood, not the tolerance police, and certainly not your own lust. You are looking through impure eyes. It cannot be wisdom. Hey, it's going to get even worse. No, I'm joking. Number two, if you are looking through judgmental eyes, it can never be wisdom. What do I mean by that? You know, this is tricky, I think, because, because we all carry some sort of, of preconception. We, we all carry biases and experiences into every perspective, into every reaction, into every decision we make. We don't come into the neutral, do we? Kind of inevitable, I think. But again, we want to see what God sees. We have to know what the Word says. We need to discern what the Holy Spirit purposes. And here's the point. If you are looking through heavily preconditioned or biased or judgmental eyes, you may well struggle to see past that to what God sees. And a lot of what what we read on social media comes across as foolish because it only sees one point of view. And if that one point of view comes out of flawed humanity, if it comes out of brokenness and pain, if it comes out of offended anger, it's going to struggle to see past that to divine wisdom. So wisdom is humble enough. James talks about humility and wisdom. Wisdom is humble enough to lay down personal bias and preconceptions. Wisdom is smart enough to recognize that sometimes when we see through our own lens of experience, the view is a little distorted. So wisdom chooses very deliberately and intentionally to put on, we call them, what would Jesus see? Glasses. Philippians 1 verse 9, and this is my prayer, Paul wrote, that, you may, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless the day of Christ. Proverbs 17, 24, a discerning person keeps wisdom in view, but a fool's eyes wander to the ends of the earth. 
there's much we could say about this, this ability to discern and see past our preconceptions and biases, but I'm just going to make one practical point today, which is this, very simple. Ask God what he sees. In any situation, ask God what he sees rather than merely defaulting to what your preconceptions see. Recognize that we all have personal bias, and so we need to ask God right at the start, Lord, what do you see here? What's going on? What are you doing? What does the Word say? How do the principles of heaven apply here? What about your promise? Holy Spirit, what are you stirring? That's what we need to ask, rather than just defaulting to our bias and our anger and our preconceptions and our judgmentalism. Really quickly, four lenses you should always try and look through first. Number one, the Word. What does the Word say? The Word of God. Number two, the character of God. What would Jesus do? Number three, the mission of God. What does God purpose? And number four, the revelation of God. What is the Holy Spirit showing? When it comes to the Word, first, we have to accept that He is the ultimate truth and authority, and His Word must override my experiences and my desires and the voice of the crowd. Number two, the character of God. If, if, if my chosen response contradicts any aspect of his character, it is not wise. Thirdly, the mission of God. There is a bigger picture that can see past me and my consequences. Sometimes it's hard to that I know. But can see past that through Christ to the cross to the resurrection, Pentecost. And fourthly, the revelation of God. He, we said last week, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of wisdom and revelation. His ministry to us is to, is to show us how truth relates to circumstance. And do you know what? If everything passes through, first of all, through those four lenses, if we do that, we can override those default settings of preconception and bias. If we do that, we can access wisdom from above. Okay, number three. I've got to speed up because you lot are slowing me down. Number three, if you are looking through vengeful eyes, it can never be wisdom. Too much of what I see out there is angry people shouting at anyone who does not agree with them. Here's some truths for you. Anger rarely makes good decisions. Fear rarely makes good decisions. Unforgiveness rarely makes good decisions. And so if those are driving you, the chances are it will not be towards wisdom. It doesn't matter how clever you are, if it comes from somewhere other than pure, holy, selfless love, it will be, as Paul wrote, a resounding gong and a clanging, clashing cymbal. It is the wisdom. Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 20, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, 
smack him. No, no, no. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, buy him a ticket to the desert. No, give him something. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Matthew 7, verse 1. Do not judge or you too will be judged. Proverbs 10, 18. Whoever conceals hatred with lying lips and spreads slander is a fool. James 3 also addresses this. Verse 14. If you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. The point there is, is that earthly and unspiritual and carnal and angry seed produces fruit in kind. Wisdom from above does not originate in anger or vengeance or bitter jealousy, but is instead peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and forgiving. We're nearly there. One more. One more. If you are looking through unbelieving eyes, it can never be wisdom. Hebrews 11:6. without faith, it is impossible to, believe, to uh, please God because anyone who comes to him must believe. Proverbs 14, sorry, Psalm 14, 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Unbelief is by definition foolishness. You will never see wisely through unbelieving eyes. Think of it like this. If God is great and mighty, if God is all-powerful, if God is a God of faith, you operate in the realm of faith. What do you think you are going to see when you're looking through his eyes? I'm going to say that again because I think that's powerful. If he really is great and mighty and holy, if he really is omnipotent or powerful, if God is a God of faith, when you're looking through his eyes, you're not going to be seeing unbelief, are you? You're going to be seeing possibility and hope and love and power truth. You see, godly wisdom will always be looking to God. It will be leaning on God. It will be trusting in God. Anything else is not wisdom from above. Godly wisdom will never lead you into fear. It will never get you to act on your doubts or instruct you to put your faith in anybody or anything else. And here's a key one. Godly wisdom will never, ever, ever, will never contradict biblical principle. And godly wisdom will never deny biblical promises. Never. Godly wisdom, for example, will never tell you to render evil for evil. It will never tell you to withdraw from God. If the wisdom that's whispering in your ears is telling you to withdraw from God, that is not wisdom from above, folks. That is art, that's earthly, unspiritual. That is demonic. Godly wisdom will never tell you to dishonor your parents. It will never tell you to tell a lie. Because it cannot contradict biblical principles or deny God's promises. 
it will never tell you to cling on to your burdens or, or to withhold your tithe or to curse your enemy, or to let the sun go down on your anger, or to give in to offense. Godly wisdom will never do that. It will never tell you to drink to excess, or, or to engage in sex outside of Christian marriage, or to take the Lord's name in vain. Why? Because all of those things are biblically classified as foolishness. The wisdom of God will always lead you into faith and obedience into biblical compliance, into fellowship with the Holy Spirit. I always lead you into worship. And so to see through God's eyes is to see through the lens of faith, strong belief, and deep trust, and bold obedience. I'll invite the worship team to Come forward if that's okay. We're, we're doing fine for time. Just wrap this up really quickly and then I'm going to throw a quick response at you. The wrap up goes like this. Very simple question. What eyes are you looking through? What eyes are you looking through? Because if you have trained yourself or if life has trained yourself or if pain has trained yourself, or if culture has trained you to look through any of those other eyes, you will not find wisdom. Because wisdom sees what God sees. So here's the response. The response is, what are you facing right now? Don't say a pastor who's preached three minutes too many although that may also be true. What in your life, okay, let's put it like this, what's around the corner Monday morning? What are you walking headlong into any second now? And then I'll ask you a second question. What does that situation look like if you look at it through God's eyes? That's a great question. As we respond this morning, I'd encourage you to take that to the Lord and ask him to, to show you what he sees. Because you know what, I guarantee that if you will see what God sees, it will lead you to infinitely better outcomes.